Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be bringing you part six of the case of serial killer Willie Picton in Vancouver, Canada. Let's get right to it. Once again, I'll be referencing Stevie Cameron's book, On the Farm, Robert William Picton and the Tragic Story of Vancouver's Missing Women, for much of this episode. Investigative journalist slash author Stevie Cameron covered the Picton case extensively. I can't recommend enough that you pick up a copy of her book. Let's pick right back up where we left off. It was the end of 1996. As most everything with the Pictons, Picky Palace Good Time Society was going to shit. There were more illegal operations running than you could shake a stick at. Dave Picton's checks to his workers were bouncing left and right. Fights were breaking out both at the bar and the farm. And of course, because Picky's Palace brought all the dregs of society to one place and they were all trying to get a piece of the Picton money. At the center of it all was Willie Picton. He was supplying everyone's wants and needs. And it wasn't just Piggy's Palace or the Picton Farm that was getting out of hand. By the end of 1996, the entire neighborhood surrounding the palace was controlled by Hell's Angels. It was a shit show in more ways than one. Dave Picton started dipping out more and more actually leaving the country and traveling to the States to do God knows what with God knows who. He had to use Willie's ID because of those sexual assault charges. But they were both equally as fugly, so it worked out. Without Dave there to bully him, Willie began spending more and more time on the downtown east side. He'd park in front of the Astoria and buy drinks for the women, flash his money, and then take them home. It was around this time that Willie's cuddle buddy Lisa Yelts moved out. But no worries, because Willie wouldn't stay lonely long. Soon, Gina Houston would take Lisa's place. Like Lisa, Gina had actually met Willie in the past, when he had stopped to pick up one of her friends for sex. They hadn't become friends back then, though. It wasn't until another of Gina's friends was working at Piggy's Palace, and they were planning a biker bash. Gina's friend Spirit was selling tickets at the gate, and she asked Gina to help her. And that wasn't the only mutual friend Gina and Willie shared either. Yet another friend had actually moved in with Gina, a friend that Willie picked and spent time with frequently. He would pick her up, take her places, and spend money on her. Gina took notice, especially of the money leaving Willie's wallet. Who exactly was Gina Houston? Well, nobody describes her better than Gina Houston herself. This gem comes from the Pig Farm documentary, which is available on Sling, Amazon, and Apple TV. Quote, I was the biggest and best crack whore there ever was. 
but I never had to put out. I always got the crack letting the guy think he's going to get lucky and always left thinking they got lucky and not realizing they got fucked but didn't get laid. Gina Houston in her own words, everyone. Despite her being the biggest and best crack whore there ever was, Willie Picton wanted to make her his wife. The pair had actually talked about getting married multiple times. At one point, Willie actually gave her a ring. Gina's response? What the fuck do I want with another ring? While she didn't accept Willie's proposal, she did go by the name Gina Picton there for a hot minute. What did Willie's old BFF think of Gina? She was a little, shall we say, salty, as she spoke on the pig farmer doc, stating, quote, Gina was abusing and using Willie, but he thought the sun shone out her ass. Can somebody call Jerry Springer because, good lord, we got an episode here. Lisa Yelds wasn't the only one who thought Gina was just using Willie, though. Everyone with a pair of eyes saw it, but none of them could convince Willie. He adored Gina. As Piggy's palace went to shit and Willie Picton got a new BFF, women continued to disappear from the downtown east side of Vancouver. New Year's Day 1997 was the last time anyone saw 47-year-old Maria Laura Laliberte. According to CBC.ca, Maria was originally from Beauville, Saskatchewan, but she had been traveling between Edmonton, Alberta, and Vancouver just before she vanished. The last person to see her was a resource worker. According to the Doe Network, Maria Laura Laliberte was five foot six with brown hair and brown eyes. She went by an alias of Kim Keller. Unfortunately, Maria wasn't reported missing until 2002, five years after she vanished. Unfortunately, that's about all we know about Maria and her disappearance. Just a little over a week later, on January 11, 1997, 20-year-old mother, Stephanie Lane, placed a phone call using a phone card that belonged to her mother. That would be the last time anyone would ever hear from her. Although Stephanie struggled with a heroin addiction, she always remained in contact with her family. When they didn't hear from her, they knew something was very wrong. Her mother immediately started searching at the number 5 Orange, a strip club Stephanie had been working at under the name Coco. But there was no trace of Stephanie, and she would never be seen alive again. On February 14, 1997, as women gathered at the annual Valentine's Remembrance Walk to pay tribute and shed light on the missing and murdered Indigenous women from the downtown east side, Sharon Evelyn Ward disappeared. Again, there isn't much known about the circumstances surrounding Sharon's disappearance, but what we do know, according to the Sharon Evelyn Ward Missing But Not Forgotten page, is that Sharon had gotten into an argument with her boyfriend and stormed out of the house they shared. She then called her mom. Her mother didn't pick up, so she left a voicemail saying she needed to talk to her, and it was important. Her mom called back multiple times, but no one has heard from Sharon since that Valentine's Day in 1997. 
the disappearances were ramping up. Only two months into the year and three women had vanished. And it didn't stop there. In early 1997, 30-year-old Maggie Gisley was living on the downtown east side, working as a prostitute, thief, and pimp. She was renting a place at the Vernon Rooms, a.k.a. the Ho-Den. Maggie was living there with her best friend, Kara Ellis. Maggie and Kara leaned on each other. Both women had been on the streets and addicted to drugs as teens. For Maggie, it all started at the age of 14, after she was introduced to hard drugs by her then-boyfriend. Maggie was brilliant, a great swimmer, and had her sights set on the Olympics. But life and circumstances had taken her in another direction. She had quite the reputation on the street. Everyone referred to her as Crazy Jackie. Her best friend Kara, a.k.a. Nikki Trimble, was 25 years old. She had been a sex worker since the age of 13 and was heavily addicted to drugs. Despite her struggles, Kara had a joyful spirit. She was adored by her brothers and never too old for a game of hopscotch with her nieces and nephews. She was smart, thoughtful, and loved to write. By early March of 97, Maggie was determined after more than 30 attempts to get sober that this time she was going to do the damn thing. She moved to Fraser Valley and was ready to reclaim her life. But all she could think about was her best friend Kara. So on March 3rd, she went to visit her. You see, Maggie was going to enter treatment the next day, and she didn't want to leave Kara behind. When she got to Kara, she could barely believe what she saw. Kara looked horrible. And Maggie learned that in the months prior, Kara had been hospitalized due to a sickness and then been beaten by the man who ran the Vernon rooms, Doug Vickers, because he believed Kara had been buying dope from somewhere else. And that was against the rules. As it turned out, the hotels on the downtown east side weren't just making money off of rooms. They also supplied drugs and took a cut of the women's money. Maggie Gisley explained it to Stevie Cameron, stating, The management originally made money principally from rent and charging $10 a head for a girl to turn a trick in the room. But around 1989, management began to operate a drug dealing business as well, and women could only buy their drugs in the building. They would get hurt if they were doing drugs from somewhere else. They would open the doors and they would check your rooms. And you'd get beat up if you had little wrappers or something like that from someplace else because you were supposed to buy from the house. When Maggie finally caught up to Kara and seen the condition she was in, she begged her friend to come with her and get help, but Kara refused. She took her to an emergency shelter to see if they could help, but they didn't know how. It broke Maggie's heart to leave her like that, but she had no choice. She left and entered treatment. Kara Ellis vanished into thin air on March 10, 1997, just a week after Maggie entered treatment. A report wasn't filed until months later because at first Kara's family wasn't too worried. It wasn't uncommon for them not to hear from her for periods of time. But by August of 1997, without so much as a call, her sister-in-law, Lori Ann Ellis, went to Vancouver to look for Kara. 
When she discovered that no one had heard from her, she called the Vancouver Police Department and made an official report. Or so she thought. According to Lorianne, as posted on a website for the women, she was told that the police would look for her, and she thought she made an official report. She later discovered that Carol was not treated as a missing person, and no one had lifted a finger to look for her. According to Lori Ann, the excuse the police gave was that she wasn't considered family because she had not yet married Kara's brother and only family could file a missing persons report. Which, let me just say, is bullshit, as is the whole you have to wait a specific time frame and all the other BS that gets thrown out there. If you're worried about a friend, family member, or someone you come into contact with frequently, call your local police. Lorianne didn't buy it either, stating part of why this was not looked upon as important enough was because of the style of life she had, and I feel that was a problem with most of the girls. And Lorianne was right. The Vancouver police didn't take the missing reports of any of these women seriously. Initially, they wrote it off as addict behavior and went on about their day. I want to note here that Maggie Gisley went on to become a huge and powerful voice for missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada, and she still fights for justice for forgotten sisters to this very day. The next woman Willie Pickton set his sights on would be Sandra Gale Ringwald, but Sandra would live to tell about it. This account comes from Sandra herself as she recounted to Stevie Cameron and as stated on the Pig Farm documentary I mentioned earlier. In 1997, 30-year-old mother of two, Sandra Ringwald, was living at the Cordova Rooms on the downtown east side. At this point in her life, she was heavily addicted to drugs. Her drug of choice? A speedball, which can take a couple different forms, but for Sandra, it was a mix of heroin and cocaine that she injected up to five times daily. March 22, 1997, started out like any other day. As soon as Sandra woke up, she needed to get her hands on some money so she could get enough drugs to keep herself from being dope sick. So she hit the streets, sold enough dope to get a few dollars together to head to the casino. Sandra loved to gamble, and if she played her cards right, she could make enough to cover her habit, satisfy her pimp, and not have to turn to so many tricks. But on this particular day, that wasn't what happened. Sandra was quickly down 60 bucks, and she knew she had to make it up before her boyfriend and pimp, Stu, found out. She was going to have to find some clients. Sandra ducked off in an alley, got high, and went out looking for a john on the corner of Princess and Cordova. It was now between 10 and 11 p.m., she hadn't been out there long before a red Chevy pickup truck rolled up. The driver rolled down the window and the two engaged in a conversation. He asked her how much oral sex would be and she told him $40. He then made her an offer she couldn't refuse. He would give her $100 if she would come back with him to his place in Port Coquitlam and he'd have her back by 1 a.m. Initially, she just didn't want to. I mean, that was too far, 
but she had just lost that 60 bucks and she knew if Stu found out, there was going to be trouble. A hundred dollars would cover it, so she climbed in the truck. The driver introduced himself as Willie, and the two made small talk as he drove her back to his place. He gave her a soda and some candy as they drove, and Sandra noticed a bra sitting on the seat. She asked Willie who it belonged to, and he informed her that some working girl had left it in the truck. They pulled up at the Picton farm, and Sandra took note of a white car parked at the gate. She also noticed the many broken-down cars, motorhomes, and all the junk scattered throughout the property. They drove to the back of the lot to Willie's trailer. She climbed out of the truck, and Willie actually slid a piece of plywood under her feet so her boots didn't get muddy as she walked up to the house. Once they were inside, Willie walked into his office and listened to all the messages left on the answer machine, while Sandra had a look around. The house was filthy as usual. Sandra Gale took note of a large butcher knife on the kitchen table. Willie came back into the room after he was done catching up on those messages and simply said, We're going to the back room. He led her into a bedroom, which was a whole nother disaster. It was filthy and there was no bed. Instead, there was a sleeping bag on the floor with a thick roll of clear plastic lying on the floor beside the sleeping bag. Uh, what in the name of all that is holy was that for? Willie handed Sandra Gale the hundred dollars. They took off their clothes and had full-blown sex, not the oral sex Willie had first propositioned. Nothing too wild happened and the encounter lasted all of five minutes. I'll refrain from any jokes here, but y'all know what I'm thinking. Sandra asked to use Willie's phone to make a call. He told her she couldn't use the phone because other girls had made long-distance calls on his phone and he'd had to pay for them. He told her he'd stop off at a payphone at the gas station on the way back. Sandra then went into the bathroom and tried to inject a speedball into her leg, but missed the vein. She was so frustrated with herself. But man, oh man, is she lucky she did because she was going to need all her wits about her to survive what was about to happen next. She came out and asked Willie if she could at least use his telephone book to look up a number. She wanted to call her pimp Stu from that payphone, and she needed the number to the Cordova rooms where he was at. He said yes and directed her towards that office. She was standing at the desk with her back to Willie flipping through the phone book. She felt him close behind her and turned around quickly. She was annoyed. Their transaction was over, so what in the hell did he think he was doing? Willie grabbed her left hand and began stroking it. Before she could stop him, he slipped a handcuff on her wrist. Oh, hell no. Sandra immediately began to fight back. Before he could grab her other hand, she started punching, kicking, and screaming. Willie did the same, and soon they were just beating the hell out of each other. She suddenly remembered that butcher's knife on the kitchen table and began backing into the kitchen, all the while taking hits and punching and clawing at Willie. Once she reached the kitchen table, she reached backwards and felt for the knife. She found it, grabbed it, cut the palm of her hand, 
but didn't lose her composure. She jumped at him, swinging the knife in front of her. She slashed at his throat and drugged the knife across his cheek. He yelled, You fucking bitch, you got me good. He grabbed a rag in one hand and found a stick with the other. He swung the stick at her. She grabbed whatever she could find and began chunking it at him. She noticed the back door and went for it, but it was glued shut. She tried jumping through a window, but it was made of plexiglass and she just bounced off. By this time, Willie had managed to get on top of her. They struggled and fought. And then Sandra blacked out. When she came to, they were outside by Willie's truck. He was on top of her, but she still had the knife in her hand. She swung frantically and screamed, Let me go. I've got a family and they'll pay a thousand bucks if you let me go. Willie snatched a knife out of her hand. But just as he got the knife, he began to lose consciousness. He crumpled on top of her. She squeezed out from under him, grabbed the knife and ran. She booked it down the driveway, through the gate, and to the house across the street. She banged on the door, but no one responded. So she broke a window and was just about to go inside when she saw headlights coming down the road. So she tried to hide, thinking it could be Willie. The headlights passed her, but quickly popped a Yui and headed back her direction. She could make out this time that it was a car and that it wasn't Willie Picton. Instead, it was an elderly couple. She screamed for help. They stopped, and what they saw horrified them. Sandra Gale was standing there, half-naked, covered in blood, with a stab wound so deep in her abdomen that part of her intestines were hanging out. She was still waving the knife. The elderly gentleman yelled, Don't stab us, so Sandra tossed a knife. They placed her in the back seat and began to haul ass to the hospital. She turned towards the man's wife in the passenger seat and said, Miss, miss, look out your window. See that little white car? If anything happens to me, if I die, that's where the guy lives that did this to me, in the trailer. The woman listened intently and dialed 911. The police and ambulance caught up to the couple en route to the hospital so the couple pulled the car over. RCMP officer Aaron Pardee jumped in the ambulance with Sandra and they began heading to the nearest large hospital, which happened to be the Royal Columbian and New Westminster. It was apparent to the medics and the police that the nearby local hospital wouldn't be able to help Sandra. Once they arrived, Sandra Gale was examined and doctors determined that she had a punctured lung deep wound to her hand, and two very deep stab wounds to her abdomen. She was quickly losing blood, and if they didn't hurry, Sandra wasn't going to make it. She was quickly rushed into surgery. While doctors worked to save Sandra's life, Officer Paradis collected what evidence he could and took note that Sandra had been found with a handcuff locked around one of her wrists. He received a phone call notifying him that a second stabbing victim was en route to the very hospital he was at with Sandra because the local hospital he had first been taken to couldn't care for him. Once Willie Picton arrived, he too was taken almost immediately into surgery. 
as the officer waited for word on Sandra and Willie, an orderly brought him Willie Picton's clothes and something he had found in the pocket of his jeans that he thought was pretty important. What had the orderly found? A key. Officer Parody thought it looked kind of like a handcuff key, so he took it into the OR, and lo and behold, it unlocked the handcuff on Sandra's wrist. He continued to document everything and collect every piece of evidence he could find. Unfortunately, Willie survived, although Sandra had opened quite the can. He had roughly 150 stitches from the two deep cuts on his arm. His back had to be stapled up due to a six-inch gaping stab wound. His throat was slashed from ear to ear, and then a second cut from his ear to his mouth, which, when Sandra had stabbed him in the mouth, she had done it with enough force that the tops of some of his teeth and part of his jawbone had actually been cut off. While Officer Parody was at the hospital back in Port Coquitlam, officers were at the house across the street that Sandra had ran to, questioning folks and documenting what evidence they could find. The house across the street was owned by the Hells Angels, of course, and they knew nothing. However, they were able to recover the knife at the home where Sandra had tossed it. Willie's trailer and truck were both searched for evidence and a few things were taken. The following day, Parody went to talk with Sandra at the hospital, and she told him everything. Well, everything except the fact that the $100 they had found on her was the money Willie Picton had paid her for sex. You see, she thought if they knew that, then they would keep the money. Surprise, surprise, Willie Picton told a whole different story. According to On the Farm, Willie stated, I was in Vancouver having a little rest in my pickup, and a prostitute knocks on the window. She wakes me up. How much, I ask. She says 200, so I says, okay. We go back to the trailer. She went into the bathroom and shot herself up. When she came out, she wanted, well, I had some money on the table. I always had cash on me. I had put $3,400 on the table. There was a knife there. She took the knife and said I want my money up front and grab for the money. I tried to take the knife away. She starts to stab me so I grab it and try to protect myself. She ran out of the trailer and ran to the booze can where the bikers are. She broke a window. An older couple took her to the hospital. I drove to the police station. I forgot it had moved. So I went to the Eagle Ridge Hospital and nearly bled to death on the way. I needed over 300 stitches. That woman, you don't hear about her at all. Poor, poor Willie. Just getting picked on by the prostitutes. And yes, my eyes just rolled in the back of my head too. There was some truth to Willie's story. Sandra had jacked him up. Even after his surgery, he was going to need someone to take care of him. And of course, Big Brother Dave stepped right up and called around offering to pay someone because he wasn't going to do all that himself. After a whole lot of pressure and all kinds of offers, he finally talked old BFF Lisa into it. She came to mash up soup for Willie since he couldn't chew 
and to make sure he took his antibiotics and pain meds. As soon as Willie was up and at him again, Lisa yelled dipped out. The RCMP wrapped up their investigation and Willie Picton was charged with attempted murder, unlawful confinement, and aggravated assault on April 8, 1997. He promptly hired the most expensive and well-known attorney in Vancouver, later bragging that he had paid $80,000 for his attorney, and $10,000 of that was for a private detective to follow Sandra around and dig up all the dirt on her that they could. The trial was set for January of 1998, but it would never happen. Sandra Gail Ringwald was intimidated and afraid and didn't show up in court. The judge dropped all the charges against Willie. He would face no charges for luring a woman to his house and trying to kill her. And with Lisa Yeld's gone again, Willie would rely more and more on biggest and best crack whore, Gina Houston. But old Gina, she was having some police troubles of her own. And it all revolved around a transgender woman named Kelly Little. According to testimony Gina Houston would give later, she had met Kelly at Agassiz prison when she had gone to visit a friend around the end of 1996 or early 97. Kelly was there doing the same thing. Kelly Little was from Agassiz but did frequent the downtown east side. The pair became fast friends and it wasn't long before Kelly was crashing with Gina in her apartment. Gina would testify that Kelly would go out and turn tricks and bring the money back to her and she would then use the cash to buy drugs. She went on further to say that Kelly had a couple customers that she could always go to. One was a correctional officer at Kent Prison, the other a Vancouver police officer. On April 23, 1997, according again to Gina, Kelly got ready to go out and see a client, who she thought was the VPD officer. She left and never came back again. Kelly Little was reported missing a week later by the landlady. Not long after the report was made, a neighbor came forward and reported that she had heard screams from Gina Houston's backyard the night Kelly went missing. Police searched but found nothing. In fact, no one has ever heard from Kelly Little again. But none of this deterred Willie Picton. Oh no. And he'd soon start using Gina just as she had used him. As we all know, word travels fast. And after the incident with Sandra, it wasn't long before that story had made it all over the downtown east side. The sex workers knew what he had done to Sandra, that he was a creep, and they also knew he was on the bad date list at the drop-in center. So he was having a little trouble getting dates. Don't get it twisted. He'd still pull up to the Astoria and eventually convince a woman to come with him. It just wasn't as easy as it had always been. So Gina became his wing woman. He paid her rent, groceries, and whatever the hell else she wanted, and she helped him convince the women that it was okay to go out to Willie's place. She'd go up to the Wish drop-in center and tell the ladies things like, I've got a friend and he's got a lot of dope and cash. 
he's up for a party and he can take us all. Often the women would go. I mean, Gina was going to be there, right? They knew her. Besides, even though they knew Willie was a bad date, he had plenty of money and he'd give them drugs. And it's not like they were going to be alone. I'm sure it comes as no surprise to anyone that the disappearances continued. But that will have to wait until next week because unfortunately, we're out of time. Join me next week for part seven of the Pig Farmer series. Trust me, you don't want to miss it. Stevie Cameron's book On the Farm, Robert William Picton and the Tragic Story of Vancouver's Missing Women can be purchased on Amazon or pretty much wherever you get your books. It is wonderfully written and details absolutely every aspect of this case. I'll put a link in the show notes. As always, you can find more information on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these. New episodes drop every Thursday. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode. I can't wait for next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.